Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of a Life Well Lived podcast. Today's episode is The Faithful to the Word. This one was dated January 10th, 1982. So without further ado, here's Don Jensen with the message. That certainly introduces us very well to 1 Timothy. And I'd like for you to turn with me this morning to that little letter, personal letter. Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and then right after the Thessalonian letters, 1st Timothy. <clears throat> Patterns for church life, that's what we're calling this study, because that's what it's all about. And as you know, we interact with the messages on Sunday, uh, during the Sunday school hour, and then of course during the week, we've already prepared some commentary notes on this first chapter and some questions that we hope that you will be picking up this week, um, either here at church at 7 o'clock as we study it together, or um, through one of the home studies um, sponsored by one of your Sunday school classes. Uh, There are a lot of controversial areas in this letter because this is a controversial day. And God gives to us some very clear instructions to know how to govern our life together. Last Lord's Day, we brought a message on the man, Timothy, as he is spoken of in other portions of the scripture outside of these letters, and found that he was a man who obviously lived up to his name, which means honoring God. That's what he did. And we look primarily at a little sentence that Luke, the historian, gives to us about this man, uh, spoken of by Paul, because Paul told Luke, he said, Luke, I want that man to go with me. I think that's a most amazing statement. Because Timothy, as we learned about, was not very well. I mean, he had a proneness to illnesses. That's what the scripture tells us. He had a nervous stomach in addition to that. And also he was um, rather introvertish, quiet in his disposition. He was not an outgoing kind of person. And uh, he was also a man who had not chalked up a lot of experiences. And yet, Paul, this man who demanded so much of others because he demanded so much of himself, said, I want that man. And the reason why he wanted that man, as we found in the record, is that he had a good report regarding his home life, his attitudes there, and regarding his proven ministry within the local church. The elders watched him, evaluated him, found that he was teachable. He also was a man who had a genuine concern for others. Took him to jail. He uh, gave up other aspirations. But he was that kind of a person. And then, of course, what made the whole thing fall together was because he was a godly man. He's called in the scripture not only a servant of others, but he's called a servant of God. Tremendous statement about this person. And now, here this morning, we come to reading a letter that was addressed to him by this man, Paul. A number of years transpire since Paul said, I want that man. And uh, we come to the conclusion of the book of Acts. Paul, as we know, uh, is imprisoned. Then he was acquitted. He didn't know if he would be acquitted or not, but he was. We all know that then was released for a brief time, and during that brief time, he shared his heart about some very important matters and wrote some some letters that are just crucial to us, crucial to us 
as members of the church today because they were the pastoral letters. A few years after that, he was rearrested, and we know that he was condemned and he was beheaded. So it was during that interval between those two Roman imprisonments that he wrote this letter to, to Timothy about some serious matters. The church has, was developing. It was a different situation than you find in, in um, Acts chapter 2, and it was just a little embryonic form, a little infant church. Uh, now the apostles are going off the scene. And you do not have the control over the doctrine, and you have all of these false teachers coming in. And so the church was growing up into adolescence and adulthood, and so structures had to come in in order to make sure that sound teaching and care for the people in an ongoing way would be maintained. And this letter tells Timothy how to govern some of those matters. And, of course, they are patterns for our church life here today. Timothy was left in charge of a large work that he didn't want to be left in charge of. As far as Timothy was concerned, it was larger than he was able to handle. It was this large church ministry at, at Ephesus. He didn't feel comfortable in assuming that. But I always find that God works that way. He never gives to us a task or a ministry uh, for which we can uh, that we are fitted in our own strength. If that were so, we would say, my, what a jolly good chap and how good of a job I'm doing. God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to stretch our faith. He wants us to look forward. And he wants us to see how um, great and big that he is and that he's able to uh, work through us. I'm always impressed by those words of Philip Brooks. He said, don't ever pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. And then your work will not be a miracle. You will be the miracle. That was said by a man who was given to deep depressions. Had a difficult time preparing sermons on rainy days. He lived in New York. I don't know what he did on those snowy, blizzard days. <laughs> but um, we are indebted to Philip Brooks for some of his hymn writing that he's given to us. Well, that was the kind of emphasis that Paul has given to Timothy here. And that's why he begins this letter by extending to him grace, mercy, and peace. God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the only time Paul ever gave that kind of a, of a um, prayer. And that was in these pastoral letters. The grace, mercy, and peace. If you compare the other letters, you'll see that that's true. Ephesus was a difficult place. Looseness of life that affected the church because it affected the people in the church, the church's people, and so obviously that affected them. Family life was difficult. What did the town live on? It lived on the, the uh, economics of uh, producing these little many-breasted sex goddesses called Diana. And when Paul went into Ephesus, you remember the difficult time that he had because he was turning things downside up. And he did not like that. But all of this were, were difficult uh, issues. Also, I suppose another area that made this ministry very difficult for Timothy is that he was in the shadow of Paul. Now, Paul had been there some years before, but nevertheless, Paul had been there for three years longer than he stayed in any other place. And, uh, you know, you don't like to be under the shadow of such a great personality. But now Paul wasn't there, and some of the leaders could remember back yonder. So Paul writes then to encourage him. And we look over the shoulder of Timothy as he reads this letter. Paul now just a few years before his death. And 
coming through this letter and Second Timothy and even Titus, it's a little phrase that we're going to find over and over and over and over again, and that is, be faithful. It's not found right here in this first chapter, but the theme of it is, and it's certainly found other places, 17 times in this letter, be faithful. Dr. V. Raymond Edmonds, past president of uh, Wheaton College, has uh, been noted for a little statement that he's made that's helped so many people. He said, it's always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to quit. This man is told, be faithful. Be faithful to the word. Be faithful to your task. Be faithful to your people. That just goes through these letters. Be faithful to the word. Be faithful to your task. Be faithful to your people. As I read this letter as a pastor, obviously, I, I apply that to the word of God, and to the task that I have as pastor, and to the people, to yourselves. I need to be faithful. But every one of us can take that because the Word of God is given to all of us to help us to know how to live wherever we are because your Word is as sacred as is mine. And you need to be faithful to the Word to tell you how to live in the hard places, in the marketplace. Be faithful to it. Do what God says. Men, don't compromise. Be faithful to the Word. Be faithful to the task that God gives to you wherever it is work or at school or at home. Be faithful and be faithful to the people that God has entrusted to you. Be faithful to them. Maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife and your children and some other friends, but be faithful to them. And that's a message that comes through all the way through that men and women and boys and girls might know how to live. We have patterns here for life in the church and in our home and wherever we are. Now this morning I want for us Obviously, we are just in this first chapter to give consideration to that first one. Be faithful to the word. The reason is, Paul tells Timothy, as we all observed, as the scripture was read this morning, that there were false teachers. The church was under severe attack. Now, it doesn't mean us with surprise. It was prophesied by Paul some years ago. He just had that knowledge of what was going to happen. And if you just want to turn back with me to that historical document there in Acts chapter 20, you see it. And just pick up a little bit of it. Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. Um, and that was before he was arrested. <clears throat> and he stopped at a little island by the name of Miletus. And he called for all of the elders of the Ephesian church that had been established. And I just pick it up here at 27th verse where he's talking now to the leaders of this church that, that Timothy has charged over now at this point. And he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, or the whole counsel of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or bishops, to shepherd, that is to pastor, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, listen, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise. What a statement. Among the eldership, Paul said. This is what he feared. Speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Teaching people with these charismatic personalities. And strong kind of statements. And they would pervert others. And boy, we're living in a day when we see how that's working. 
Therefore be on the alert, remembering the night and day. For a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. Well, that came to pass. And here is Paul now writing Timothy and telling them how to handle the problem that has arisen within this tremendously um, large and effective church, but fragile in that sense. And Paul tells us here that in verse 3 and 4, he says, I, and he reviews what he had shared with Timothy earlier. He said, Now I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct, here he means command, certain men not to teach strange doctrines who are to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration or the stewardship of God, which is by faith. Now I suppose that the problem here, from our knowledge of church history, converged in the area of Gnosticism, these myths, also, as we read uh, books that were written between the close of the Old Testament canon and the beginning of the New, we have the Apocrypha. We have a lot of mythical stories, fanciful stories. Also, there are a lot of other documents that were written. As you read some of that, you kind of get a flavor of some of the problems that um, were there. Now, in our day, it's not exactly the same problem, but there are similar problems that you put under that category of myths and genealogies that we need to be on guard against, like spiritism. I'm really afraid for a lot of people who see how close they can get to some of that. They have a, an unhealthy, neurotic curiosity about demons. Very dangerous. I have even observed some Christians who play around with the demonic doctrine of incarnation. Very dangerous. Or the cult that we're going to see next Lord's Day night. There are others who play around with destructive doctrines and thoughts that converge in a whole area of legalism that people are beating to death. Or novelties and prophecy. Uh, I think one of the hardest areas today that we need to be on guard against, and Jim and I have talked about, is the area of music. Music is so important, and so the enemy tries to interrupt there. There's such a proliferation of writings today. And I know that no singer has a right to stand behind this desk and sing a lie any more than any man or woman has a right to stand behind here and tell a lie. And I've really appreciated Jim's ministry in um, knowing how to take truth of the scripture and allow it to be sung in a relevant kind of music form that communicates to us. But we need to be on guard. Some music says nothing. Some music has some errors in it. We need to be careful. I'm just saying there are all kinds of areas that we need to be on guard against. And we see some, sometimes people are, what do you have a new memory class for? You know. Well, someplace you have to guard, it says. Guard. We need to make sure that people understand what we believe about the Bible and about God and about Jesus Christ and about the Holy Spirit and the nature of sin and salvation and last things. What are the things that we hold for which we'll die if need be? Because there must not be any kind of penetration uh, in setting aside of that which is true. Now that's the kind of heart that 
falls even to Timothy. And uh, we have an easier job of it, I think, than even Timothy did because we have the traditions of the church and we have the full canon of Scripture. Remember, Timothy didn't have that in his possession. It was still being written. This here was just one of the documents that just come to him fresh. Now we're reading over his shoulder here. I was reading a um, uh, book by, uh, what was that? Um, said, you know what your people read? They were talking to pastors. You know what your people read? I mean, I'm responsible to the flock. Do I know what you read? Well, specifically, of course I don't. Remember sometimes what I've read myself. <laughs> it's like I can't remember now who it was that wrote this question. It said, you know what your people read? But generally I do. So watch it. <laughs> because as Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know that what we take into our mind comes out through our hearts and our hands and our feet. It's important to us. You know, you see, whatsoever a man, woman thinks. So is he or she. What we're interested in, what we're committed to, what's more important, what has priorities. By what we allow to filter into our minds. Now Paul says, to counteract the false with the truth. And uh, I think a key verse in this first chapter is this fifth verse, which I want for us to have as a, as a memory verse. The goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere or unfeigned faith. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Will you say that with me? Read it if you need. If you don't, that's the New American Standard. Um, if you don't have that in front of you, it's right at the top of the bulletin. Let's say it together. But the goal of our instruction is love from a your heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The key thing in that um, small verse is just that itself for us to put handles on. One is obviously we are to teach it. Teach the word. If we're going to be faithful to the word, we need to teach it. The other is that we need to exercise it. And then, um, as the Apostle Paul says, we need to develop it. But we need to teach it. And I take that from this from the word that's translated here, instruction. It's a word that really means proclamation. It's a general word for the word. Uh, it refers to that whole counsel of, of God. And this was a charge that Timothy has. Doctrine, teach, teacher, teachers, and teaching occurs 32 times in the pastoral letters. Paul puts a tremendous emphasis upon that. In the sixth chapter of this little letter, he says to guard it. Don't let it be replaced. Don't let it be diluted. Don't let it be adulterated. The reason is, Paul says this word is the gospel. This is the gospel. And the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. And it's so important. When Paul thinks of the gospel, something happens to him on the inside. He can't talk about it or even write about it without... Uh, something bursting on the inside and then it goes up to praise. Notice when Paul talks about the gospel, calls it the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He says, I thank, and here's his testimony. Boy, when he thinks gospel, he thinks his testimony. 
I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into the service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet he says, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement, Timothy, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And then he just bursts out with praise. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. So may it be. Amen. And so don't distort it. I hope there's no one who comes into this congregation this morning can go out and not understand that that if you're down in the pits, listen, Jesus came to deliver you from that. He came, he came to, to save sinners, it says here. Those who are in need. Lord, what a tremendous statement to encourage the discouraged. That's what the gospel is about. Paul says, don't let anything ever obliterate what it's all about. I'm concerned today that I see in a Christian community fuzziness about the gospel. People not able to articulate it. What it is. Somehow they, they, they it escapes them. They don't understand that the gospel is composed of two major events. His death and his resurrection. Paul said, I delivered unto you the gospel. How that Christ died for our sins. Proof he was buried. He rose again. Proof it was according to the scriptures. And he appeared to others demonstrated. Sometimes people talk about commitment, they'll talk about being born again, and they miss the gospel, they miss the heart of it. Which is that Christ died for our sins in order that we might have a relationship. Paul says to teach it. You know, one of the prayers that Paul made about the gospel, he says, pray that I'll make it clear. That I'll make it clear. And we need to know how to do that. The main task is to preach the word. And uh, we learn here some always that Paul would have us to know that the main thing is to see that the main thing remains the main thing. He, in verse 11, he calls this sound teaching. It's the word from which we, we get hygiene. It's healthy. If it's healthy, now notice, it's healthy is what we produce. It's alive. How it's alive is that it must be exercised. The goal and the end of it are all is love. The purpose of the word is not to make us theologians. The purpose of the word is not to give us information about God. The purpose of the word is to help us to love, is to change our lives. The information is only a means to the end. If that's not true, what happens is that we can fall in this category, like in verse 6, that some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions. That is, people will talk, he says, about things that don't give life, or help, or eternity, or in the problems of this day. They talk. They talk. But their talk is barren. It doesn't help. It doesn't give life. It doesn't help a person establish a relationship with God. 
and Paul is so concerned about that. Leon Morris, one of my former professors, said, it's always easier to get into an argument than to live the Christian life. He said, it is human nature to prefer vigorous discussion to sacrificial living. Uh, that was a, boy, I was right on target in commentary upon this word here when Paul says, the goal, the end, the purpose of our instruction is love. It's love. It's living, it's sacrificial living for the sake of somebody else. Otherwise, we'll just talk, 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 barren talk. And the gospel here, as I read this and as you read it, is the purpose of this gospel, the purpose of our proclamation, the purpose of our study, the purpose of our reading it, the purpose of our having this book is to produce loving, compassionate, caring, patient, tender-hearted, forgiving people. That's what the purpose is. The purpose of the commandment, the purpose of our Sunday school, the purpose of our studies is to produce love that goes out to somebody else. And as I thought about that, I thought, what would God have us to do? And I thought of Lucy's conversation with Linus. She said, Linus, Charlie Brown says that uh, our purpose on earth here is to make others happy. And Linus says, is that why we're here? She said, I guess I'd better do a better job. I'd need to get shipped out. <laughs> and that's why we're here. That's the purpose to love. Who did you love this last year into the kingdom? Whom did you share the gospel? I mean, the gospel that changes people? Of a sincere faith. A lot of people don't have sincere faith. Faith is made up of at least two great elements. One is rational, that we believe that the facts of Christianity are true. And the second is that it's personal. There is a commitment it's between God and myself, a sincere faith, a good conscience, that we stay, that we, that we will say like Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. If you violate that, you make shipwreck of the faith. Hymenius Alexander, case in point. They violated good faith and a good conscience, it says. They did not act according to what they knew they should have done. And then a pure heart. And obviously a pure heart gives a powerful heart. If we have some if we nurse some secret sins on the outside, in the inside it comes out with sores on the outside. And we become an operative there. Yesterday, um, some of us had um, the privilege of attending a seminar that we are hoping that we can make available to you, or at least to a number of you. Um, it was put out by uh, Robert Schuler. And uh, I think all of us were just really impressed with his heart. And uh, even solid theological premises sometimes is um, maybe more obscured than some of us would like. But our hearts were really thrilled as we saw his heart for people and what the people um, have done there in that kind of ministry. You made a statement that 
impressed me. I don't know if I can recall it um, word for word, but he said this. He said, the secret of success, and he meant spiritual success, is to find a hurt and heal it. He said, it's to find a need and to fill it. It's to find a chasm and to bridge it. It's to find a problem and to solve it. It's to find an obstacle and to remove it. It's to find an empty heart and to fill it. It's to find a self-flagellating person and to give him dignity. And obviously the only way those kind of needs and dignity can be given is through this matter of love. Um, and we all know that love is a misunderstood word and we've talked about it many times and I don't need to, to spend much time on that, but it is a misunderstood word and all of us need it. I read, I read an article about a man in, in England, in a prison there, a Wandsworth prison, who escaped out of the exercise yard and they found him later on up on the roof and all the sticking out of um, the chimney there was, was his head and his shoulders. And he was crying out, no one loves me, no one loves me, no one loves me. And my dear friend, you know that people are like that right here. There are some who feel that at times. The prison down on the inside. And some of you can really nod because some of you have gone through that. And then you discovered, hey, someone does love you. God loves you and his people are there to support you and to love you. And that's what the end of the commandment is. It's love. That word love is really misunderstood. If, 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 if diet pepper is the most misunderstood soft drink, love is the most misunderstood word in the world. In tennis, love is, means nothing. In marriage, it means everything. In life, it means it can mean anything. From I love my wife to I love diet Pepsi. Uh, you turn on the radio and all kinds of love songs that excite us, the love that thrills us, the love that inspires us, but this is a love that uh, Paul tells Timothy is a love that costs. And it's a sacrificial kind of love. And when it's exercised, it gives something back to us. God loves us so patiently and so persistently and sacrificially. Well, the end of the commandment is love. And I want to challenge you to love a person that's hurting. Love them into the kingdom. Ask yourself, what kind of sacrificial act can I make? Now, if some of you are saying, oh, pastor, you don't know how much I hurt, I can't do that. This kind of love is, fulf is fulfilling only as you give it out. And the more you give out, the more you get in. And you start to give it out in the name of Jesus. It's something that comes in. It's just the way it works. What Jesus said, the great message of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Well, there you have it. All we need to do is just be faithful and help someone that hurts and fill their need. Help them find Jesus. Well, that wraps up this episode. Till next time, see ya.